I'm me, I'm Rebecca, and today I'm going to be reading from Genesis 12, which is on page 11 in the Blue Bibles. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. If we individually and corporately are going to understand uh, our place in the world, in God's world and in God's scheme of things, we've uh, labelled this series the end of the beginning, beginning of the end, because that's really where it falls. Our Bibles should sort of flop open at this chapter. It's such a significant fold in the unfolding purposes of God. Basically, if we look at the first 11 chapters of this book, we, we have a, a scrapbook of God's memorable disappointments that he, he uh, causes to be put down. This is really the human record. It's our charge sheet, and it's pretty disappointing. It, again and again, there are cycles of violence and perversion and uh, utter selfishness that are nothing like the Edenic experience that God had planned for those made in his image. In fact, there are several cycles that recur through that section. It's always a cycle of human perversion, 
human evil, followed by God's response of judgment because he's holy, but mixed and then followed by God's grace. So evil followed by judgment, followed by grace. That's the human nature of human history as far as God's concerned. But uh, it comes to a, a fruition with the story of Babel in the previous chapter, which is the immediate context here, where we read that in this place called Ur, uh, around the Sumerian area, around Babylon, that sort of part of the world, which we're going to look at in a moment, that uh, these people had a decision and they decided to do something that typified the human spirit in architecture. And that is they decided in verse 4 to come and build a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. You know, we're pretty important people. That's their attitude. And these things that we read here speak of a cultural context, a social context, which we as readers do not understand. We don't come out of this context. They did. The original hearers of these texts read them with this mindset. They understood that sort of attitude of making a name great for themselves. And they decide to build a temple to reach to the heavens when in fact actually what they're doing is, is building a temple that will bring the gods down and bring heaven and earth together. We've got to understand, I want to spend a little moment now just looking at this social context because it's so different to where we live. They have no experience of centuries of the civilising impact of the gospel upon Western culture. All the things that we take for granted are not part of the world frame and the way people think. This happens around somewhere, and the scholars are of, uh, up in the air over it, somewhere around 2000 BC. It's a Middle Bronze Age. It's in Sumer. It's a high culture. This Sumerian culture were not barbarians. They were the centre of learning. This is the place which was responsible for writing. Cuneiform script was the first human writing. They were engineers par excellence. They had the mathematical ability to to work through that. They measured uh, the universe. They were the first astronomers, the universe that they could see. But uh, also they they were uh, proud people. They had ethics and law. Instead of an eye for an eye, they had the law of retributive uh, fining. When someone did something, they could pay for it. They're astronomers, I said, but that also led, when blended with religion, which is equally part of culture, they, they, they were into astrology. And their view of the world was that uh, uh, the, the, the gods, which were associated with the, the figures in the heavens, uh, were calling the shots on earth. The upper story controlled the lower story where man, mankind lived. So this viewpoint, actually, they, they exported into India and into Egypt and then across into China. Uh, it affected the whole world, this world view. The Sumerians basically had this one major god and then four creator gods, the, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the air, and... Uh, uh, is that four? I can't remember. But, uh, and the sea. And uh, they... they 
had this idea that those gods were sort of conferring in a cabinet with the main god and determining what went on. Now, the architecture... Oh, let's look at where we're talking about. If you have particularly acute eyesight, uh, you see Babylonia. We've got two rivers, Tigris and the Euphrates, underneath it, and they, they merge at this little place called Ur, which is just outside of Kuwait today. It's in um, southern Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq today. And in this story, we're going to read that they move up the highway, the dotted line, which is a main trade route, right up to Haran, which is right in the top of the middle there. You can see Haran uh, between the Hittites and Ararat. And that's in southern Turkey today. And uh, so these Sumerians, they develop writing, they have their own language. It's a phenomenal thing that uh, after this particular period, that language is not related to any other language uh, known that we've ever discovered. And it dies out once their civilization dies out. Quite interesting. So there's this idea that in chapter 11 to basically save these people from themselves and becoming a proud totalitarian state and, and using religion to control all the states around them, God confuses them and scatters them through the scattering of language. The scattering of language is actually a blessing, a way of providentially stopping men from being monsters. And that's what is happening here. But to be a human being in this world is to be really a speck on the landscape. You see, the gods had no interest in humanity. We were there for their entertainment value, to offer them snacks in the temple, uh, basically to uh, offer them a bit of pornography, to get them stimulated, to produce the fertility that would then foster the growth of the plants and the beasts. And that's the mindset in this high culture of uh, Sumer. They're in this, locked into this spin cycle where all the time, every year, there's this seasonal dependency on the waxing and waning of the moon. And basically as the height of summer and harvest is over and summer gets too hot, everything tends to die off. They had the view that the main god, Nana, was descending into the netherworld, that he'd die every year and come spring next year, he'd resurrect and be reunited with his wife and they'd produce the fertility that is the prosperity of the nation. That's the view. This is what Q Baptist preaches. I mean, this is, but I'll just uh, simply point it out. It's very essential that you understand this. This is, um, you know, how pagans thought. Everywhere. But this is the high culture. In fact, it's fascinating that that view ends up getting right inside God's people and once it's in... It's very hard to eradicate. And, you know, 1,500 years later, the prophet Ezekiel writes, and in chapter 8, you can read it there, about women in the temple of God back in Jerusalem that are weeping for Tamuts. They're weeping for the wife of the God who's just lost her husband. It was part of syncretism, blending together biblical faith with cultural myth. And that's been the problem for missionaries and, and uh, the church and pastors 
since time immemorial and for the prophet of Ezekiel. It's trying to say, how on earth did we take this stuff out of Egypt and then import it into Jerusalem? For those very reasons, God's people went into exile. But basically, that's the world you lived in. You didn't really matter to the gods. You had entertainment value. Your destiny is uncertain. And basically, it sent you on a a fruitless hunt through life to basically deduce where you stood with the gods by the fortunes that you had. You're always living this deductive life and if things were going sour, you must have offended the gods, you better run to the temple and offer a sacrifice. If things are going well, you better run to the temple and offer a thanksgiving. (laughs) You You can see it's a good economy around religion. And into that, we have this man who is a product of this culture and it's probably at Ur where God first calls him. We're not told anything about this call. It's private business. We're not told anything about how God spoke or what he actually uh, did to convince Abram that it was the Lord. But his father, Terah, and his three brothers set off for Canaan in the previous chapter. But they pause in Haran because the dad's a bit old and eventually they're there for decades, we're not quite sure how many, up there and now they're Aramaic people speaking Aramaic. And then God basically comes to them again in chapter 12, verse 1 and says, get going south. They're going to travel down through all these famous places that are still there today, Aleppo and uh, Damascus, and all these significant towns that you read about in the rest of the Genesis and the Old Testament, Shechem, which became the capital of the northern kingdom after the first exile, Hebron, uh, we haven't got some of the others that are shown there that are in this text, Bethel, Ai, these are places that you read about. And he heads south. Now, the Lord basically says to him in verse 12, go from your country, that's the command, get on your bike, get moving, And your kindred and your father's house take the whole lot to the land that I will show you. Did we actually show the ziggurats pictures? No, let's have a look at some ziggurats before we get going. Just if you're interested. (laughs) This is the ziggurat, the great ziggurat of Ur, dug up in 1920. People for ages were saying, this stuff here is mythology. No such person as Abram, etc., That's the ziggurat at Ur that he would have walked past in his daily life. That's only the bottom story. Uh, The rest had sort of crumbled. It it would have looked a bit, oh, that's Kay's new plan for our gazebo. There we go. Uh, um, But it's it's very much like that. And uh, you can sort of see there were three levels and they've excavated this lower bit. Did I do that? (laughs) Power. (laughs) But uh, it's um, really a, a, a... a three-stage, like a wedding cake building, that temple, and, and the, the priest could enter the lower section, but the cabinet of heaven, those four creator beings, they met invisible man-gods. The thing about Abram's faith is that, like pagans, and he was a pagan, he wasn't selected because he already believed in God, or he was righteous, or ethical, particularly rich, he, he really was part of that culture and the gods would meet in that little house and determine destiny of us all. That was their view. 
But then God gives him this command and he gives him this promise. And this breaks the cycle. This now, chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 1, is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. This is where we and our hope come into being, right in that sentence, as God breaks the cycle of endless cycle of his judgment of man's sin and of grace that follows and sustains, but then men sin again. He breaks that cycle. He can't go on forever just propping up a croc universe. He's got to reclaim it and restore it. And this is where the restoration begins. It's the end of that old cycle. He breaks humanity out of that spin cycle that they've been locked into. And now he, he does this through Abram. And you notice the promise there, quickly to run through it. He says he's going to give him a place. Uh, and it's the land that I will show you. They're going to have their own land. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So instead of the usual agenda, trying to raise your significance, here is your significance. God is going to give him a great name. In fact, the name of Abram already meant uh, noble father or something like that. Highbrow father. Security. Um, This fellow, he says, I will bless those who bless you, verse 3, and he who dishonours you, I will curse And in you, all the families of earth will be blessed. He's going to be secure because whoever touches him is touching the apple of God's eye. And God will take, uh, be a dispenser of justice. Uh, This bloke is like a lightning rod. He's actually a dangerous figure. If you take him on, you take on God. That's the nature of this fellow. But he's a pivotal figure because it's through this one person that God will bless the whole world. Now, just imagine that, that Abe's been out counting the goats that morning and uh, he comes into Sarai in the tent. Uh, How was it, dear? How did the goats go? Oh, I was just having my quiet time out there and I met uh, this being called Yahweh. Oh, yes, what did he say? Well, basically, the whole world is going to be blessed through me. Oh, really, dear? That's nice. But that's an extraordinary, we've got to sense that extraordinary thing. This is just one simple guy and he has met this being called Yahweh. A little comment on Yahweh or the Lord. I've been saying the word Yahweh, but the word that's capital L-O-R-D in your text is wherever you see in the Hebrew text Y-H-W-H. And that word, God's name, Really, it's often translated sometimes as the I am. You would have seen that in your Bibles. It says that to Moses. But really, it's a a word which is sort of a verb and a name. And it actually doesn't just mean I am. It, It really means I will cause to be what will be. It's God's claim to absolute sovereignty. It's God's way of saying, when I promise something, I've got the capacity to bring it about. That's who we worship, folks. We worship the God whose plans cannot be thwarted. We worship the God who is sovereign. Not just raw power, but a God with a purpose, a gracious purpose that will not be thwarted. That's what his name means. I will cause to be. And he has revealed himself to Abraham and he's made these promises on his name that he will fulfill. 
Well, Abe gets up and goes. He packs up the whole family. They head off down through Damascus, through Shechem. And you notice what he does? He gets into the land and then uh, when he gets in verse 7, the Lord appears again to him when he's reached the land, when he's acted on the faith that he's had and he's followed the instructions. God confirms it and he meets him again. And that becomes like a sacred site and he gets some rough stones and he just piles up the stones and has a, we think he probably had a sacrifice there. And that becomes a site for his memory but also a witness to the nations around that this really is the country that God has promised his offspring. This is God's territory. And those cans that he puts around aren't just to like Major Mitchell pass this way. This is really saying this is God's country. It's a witness. It's an act of worship. You follow me, you're following the pathway of God. And he does it again and again. That just repeats through this first half of the chapter. And he moves to hill country. He does the same again. And there he starts to develop the habit of reliance upon the promise. And he calls upon the name of the Lord for basic things. It's just saying he prays to God. He's shifting his barometer needle from a deterministic view of the world where fate and the gods determine your wealth to starting to act as if Yahweh calls. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of this time, a famine strikes and the rain stops. It's not seasonal. It's uh, even worse. They haven't had rain for a long time. Now, here's a guy... And he's come out of Haran, and while he's been in Haran, he's picked up a lot of flocks, he's picked up a lot of servants, he's got to feed them, his goats need pasture, his sheep need pasture, and there isn't any pasture. What does he do? He goes to Egypt. Egypt has got an irrigation system. They can withstand a lot of the variations in climate, they're a very wealthy nation. It seems a logical thing to do, harmless little thing to do. But God never said, when things get tough, go to greener pastures. God basically said, you're going to travel around the land. You're going to depend on the promise. And you see, he doesn't pray at that point. He assumes. And at this point, we start to see that this fellow is quite insecure. Why do you know he's insecure? Because now he moves down into a territory where they have another religion, not the moon god, the sun god. And as he's walking around, he would have seen the incredible, monstrous uh, carvings and, and sculptures to Pharaoh, portrayed as a lion, portrayed as a sphinx, the tombs of the greats, He's now in the territory of Ra, not Yah. And what has happened here is not that he is suddenly acting inconsistently. Let me just pause that with you. He decides, because he knows the divine right of kings, he knows that maybe, I don't think he's, uh, he's, uh, his eyesight was blurred, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but he knows that his Sarai is quite a catch. And he also knows the way these pharaohs think. They have to run the world on fertility, which means they have to have an ongoing supply of sexual titillation in the harem. And he knows that pharaohs' satraps are out there and they've always got an eye open for someone they can abscond in. And, and 
if, if they think that she's married to him, they just need to dispense with him and she's free. So he thinks he's going to lose his neck. What has he done? He has assumed that Yahweh doesn't rule here. I can't depend on him and I would suspect that what is going on here in the eye of the famine, it's come to him that maybe this God that he's met out counting the goats that day has died and is headed like all these nature gods to the netherworld and maybe spring comes and he'll return. So he's got to use his own wits and he comes with a dumb scheme that will pass his sister off as his wife off as his sister. Well, folks, I think actually what is happening here is not that Abram is being inconsistent with his faith. I think he's actually being consistent with his faith. The trouble is that his template of faith is the old template and all that's changed is that a little bit of religion has been rubbed in on the surface. It's a laminate. It doesn't go deeply. A real conversion is a change of worldview where people look at the whole world through the lens of revelation, what God has given us in his scriptures. That's a Christian. A revolution has occurred down at the deepest level. That's a disciple. That's a conversion. The trouble in mission and evangelism right around the world is the depth or lack of of a Christian worldview. And Abram, he's still operating out of the old hardware. And it's like the gospel of Yahweh, the promise fulfillment gospel, the new trajectory is just like a patch that's been added on, but it hasn't really transformed him. Folks, we live in a postmodern age too, today. And each of us myself more modernism, but you guys postmodernism, you've been marinated in that for 20 or more years. Don't think it doesn't get in. But if you become a Christian, it's got to get out. You cannot be a Christian and operate off the template of secular worldview. You must bring your mind to church as well and have it transformed. You know, it's no accident that the National Church Life Survey pointed out recently how badly we're doing as Baptists, not so much in this church, but across the board, people your age are more likely around Australia to believe in reincarnation than someone born in Thailand. What's going on? You know, we don't need just more people coming to church or more expression of surface Christianity. It will not last when the famine comes. We have to transform ourselves or allow ourselves to be transformed by the word of God. You know, I uh, had a run-in with a uh, church leader at another church few years ago and I can't remember what the issue was but I just preached a sermon I'd mentioned some of the legislation that was coming through the Victorian Parliament I can't remember which one it was 
that I'd finished off and uh, shaken hands, pressed the flesh, moved out into the foyer to have the convivial cup of coffee. When this guy made a little beeline for me and uh, Kay was there and her mother and I'd known this guy donkey's years and uh, he came up and, and he basically said, uh, Brother Jeff, and I thought, oh, here we go, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and uh, he went to town because I had the audacity to criticise his viewpoint about where birth begins. That was the issue. It was about abortion and uh, the failure of the abortion law to protect the rights of the child of the womb. And uh, anyway, in the middle of this tirade, I finally managed to get a word in edgeways and I just asked him a question. I said, where did you learn to think like the unsaved? (laughs) And it just stopped him for a minute. And I said, because none of these ideas that you're... I can hear them from any, any, any secular mouth. They're not particularly Christian, but why, why are you adopting them? And he came out with this crazy line. He said, well, we're all entitled to our own ideas. Now, I thought that was the silliest thing I'd heard in years. We aren't entitled to our own ideas. If God doesn't speak, we're entitled to our own ideas. We're responsible for our own ideas, but we're not entitled to them if God has revealed himself. We are responsible to bring our ideas into conformity with God's revelation. That's the order. That's the nature of real conversion. Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be marinated by the culture in which you've been brought up. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need a new mind. We don't just get Jesus to come along and bless what we're already thinking. That's what's happened in the European church that's disappeared. The ice block has melted into the river and no one knows where the church is. Don't be conformed to this gospel, whether it be a postmodern world or a modernist world or a secular world or a materialist world. It's not Jesus' world. It's not the way he thinks. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing it, you might prove for yourself, he's saying, what the will of God, what is good, it really works, acceptable and perfect. You can't improve upon it. Folks, our experience of Jesus depends on thinking like Jesus. You need to bring that mind of yours that he has given you and expose it to his searchlight. Well, what happens in the story is that basically, unwittingly, Abraham has done two things. Yes, he's been a nasty crud and he's handed his wife over to a harem. I bet that helped relationships. But what he's actually done is, by his actions, he's actually reinforced the worldview of Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he is the divine one who has the right to all the best women. And and Abram, I'm sure at this point, he gets blessed by Pharaoh with heaps of new slaves and servants. We read donkeys and cattle and sheep. He's never had it so good. It's a windfall. What is Abraham thinking right then? If he's got the old template, he's thinking, God is on my side. Surely prosperity means blessing. Folks, there are churches who preach that and are preaching that this night, and it's heresy. Don't believe it. 
You cannot deduce your status with God by your bank account. It's a lie of the devil. You deduce your status with God by whether you're living under his promise, whatever promises he has given. Let me make that patently clear. Here we have Abraham reinforcing the materialist culture of a guy who thinks he is God, Pharaoh, the sun god. And God finally intervenes a second time. This is not his plan. And a plague breaks out upon the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, with his template, a deductive template, deduces that he might be out of step with the cabinet in heaven. And so he does a a reconnaissance. They wind back the CCTV and they think, what has happened recently? They could have brought this upon us. And the only thing they can deduce is that they brought this new woman into the harem. And we don't read it here, but I think you can put two and two together pretty faithfully. And they've asked Sarah, now come on, cough up, what's going down here? And she spilled the beans that she's some other guy's wife. And I think she's done more than that. And isn't this a great picture here that we have, as Paul says, that the, the, the Gentiles, those who don't know God, have the law of God written on their hearts and he knows he's violated a, a principle of the universe, that you don't step into another man's marriage. And so he goes and gets, he gets Abram and he asks for an explanation. Please explain. Why did you say that this one was your Sister, when she is your wife. And I think this is a fascinating way to finish this, this little passage here. He loses it with Abraham. But the interesting thing is, if I was Pharaoh, I think I would have said, okay, you can have your wife back, and then what would you have said? Donkeys and sheep, please. Servants, give it all back on your way. That's what he had the right to say. But he doesn't say that. He actually explicitly commands his men to let this guy leave with all the loot. Why? I think it's pretty obvious that Sarah has let him in on the promise. And she said, you know, I've got to tell you, You touch that guy, you touch the apple of God's eye. This plague, that's the result of touching God's anointed man. And Pharaoh, I think he learns two things through this moment. First of all, he learns he is not God. That's a big come down for a big narcissist. And secondly, he learns that Yahweh is Lord and has the capacity to fulfill any promise that nothing can get in the way of his will. And folks, we are sitting here tonight because this God's promise has come true in your history, because grace has been rolling on through history. It hasn't been stuck in the spin cycle. It's been penetrating the evil of this world. Even the world, watch this space in Ukraine and Russia. God has a plan to use that for his good. 
Give it time. God's plan will not be thwarted. He is Yahweh, therefore he does what he pleases. And it pleases him to save men and women like you and me. I've got to ask you tonight, how big is your God? How true is your faith to him? Is it adequate? Each of us needs to be a person who has an adequate view of God. You need to think about him and you need to live under his promise. That's what he's calling us to do. And when he calls you to do that, he calls you a life of what really matters, a life of meaning. You become not a spectator of the divine world, you become a player. That's our privilege. That's where we sit tonight. Each of us, rethink how you think of yourself. You can only do that if you rethink who Yahweh really is. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father and our God, as we sit here tonight, in one sense, pitiful specks upon the universe and the landscape of this world and of history. But in another sense, people known by yourself, needles that have been pulled out of the world's haystack for your purposes. We have the audacity to sit here tonight and grant you permission to change the way we think. We thank you, Lord, though, that The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We thank you, our Father God, that through giving us, giving over to you our very thinking, our very assumptions, our culture, that you can transform us and make us useful to your eternal purposes. We just look forward to watching this space as we live under your promises from this day forward in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say before we depart and respond with our adequate musicians in worship tonight that if you've never come to this position, you see, it's not enough to believe in Jesus or that he exists or even that he loves you. To become a Christian is to say, Jesus, you are Lord. Yeah. And I want to live under your promise. I want to be put on a trajectory. You take the driving wheel and you take me where you will. If that is something you've never said to God, don't leave this building tonight until you say it to him. You might say it through the words of this song. But if you have said it, then we have folk here who know how to comfort you in that and encourage you. Harry, myself, David and Marie are sitting there for this purpose. Peter and Marion, come and stand with someone and ask for prayer that they might seal that moment as you give your whole life, including your mind, to Jesus Christ as Lord. In Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.